Good morning. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Monday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. If I asked you to name your favorite music, what would you say? Would classical music make your list? What about your top five? Many of us have come to associate classical music with fancy garden parties, the moneyed elite, or stuffy concert halls. But classical music is so much more than these stereotypes. Today, I'm excited to welcome Ariana Warsaw Van Rock to the show. She is the author of Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. Ariana earned a bachelor's degree and a master's of music from the Juilliard School and has performed in halls and venues around the world, including Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy Center. She's been featured in the tours of such legendary artists as Chris Bode and Sir James Galway and has appeared as concert master of the Juilliard Symphony, the McGill Chamber Orchestra, and the Pacific Music Festival Orchestra. Good morning, Ariana. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I was ecstatic to learn about this book because, as you can imagine, we're a big fan of music here on WYXR, Um, but also because, I'll be honest, I'm probably one of those people who think, oh, classical music, that's not for me. And you talk about that in your book as well. So let's just dive into that part of it. Classical music, it is for me. That's what I've learned from reading this book, Um, but it's also for everyone. Could you talk a little bit more about maybe why we even have this misconception that it's only for certain people and people who aren't us? Yeah. I mean, this is a great question. So much of this happened before we were born. So, you know, the the complete answer is one I can't give, but (laughs) I do in the book, I go into a couple different factors that I think can explain it. Um, So on the one hand, you have Hollywood and film. And um, it's really unfortunate how in the 80s and 90s, there were just like two pieces of classical music used for everything, for every, like every time there was a villain throwing a party or like, you know, the protagonist is supposed to feel really uncomfortable in a situation, then there will always be Eine kleine Nachtmusik or by Mozart or uh, one of the Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And um, these, I think it just really got drilled into people's heads that this was something that was only for people yeah with money or sometimes it was used in commercials to portray boredom you know like there will be this sleepy classical start and then it will change to something like rock and everyone will wake up but you know I mean the fact is and we'll get into this later but classical music is there's it's just hundreds of years of music grouped into one category and it shouldn't be it's totally different styles so even if you don't like Eine Kleine Nachtmusik or anything by Mozart there's probably something within the repertoire that you do like anyway but going back to your question um the other the other thing that I go into in the book is the history of snobbery in classical music (laughs) and (laughs) there is while classical music is definitely not for snobs snobs have been a part of the the scene for quite some time because the composers 
who needed to eat and survive had um, usually, or at least during the, the earlier classical periods, they had patrons who were, you know, members of the aristocracy. Um, the thing is though, that often the composers really hated these guys. So you have great letters uh, that Mozart wrote about how much he hated his employer, the prince, uh, the Archbishop Hieronymus Colorado. Um, he, he talks about how he hates him to insanity and how he can't wait to leave, but he, the problem is that he just needs the income. And Mozart, by the way, wrote ridiculous poems about his bowel movements, about like all his digestive activity. I mean, he's so far from snobby. It's crazy that people use his music in this way. Um, he also wrote songs about it. So it's not like, you know, <laughs> not, not only in his private letters, but actually things that he put out there into the world. And then um, there's also, oh, Bach was once, imprisoned by his employer for because he tried to quit so he didn't get a promotion he tried to quit and then the guy was like that's not acceptable and he put him for four weeks in jail this is so <laughs> again there there is yes a long history of snobs involved in the classical scene but also of classical musicians trying to get away from them mm, yes understandable understandable um i love in something you alluded to already is we think about or i guess we meaning kind of the everyday person um, who hasn't read your book yet. Uh, we think about classical music as just one type of music and that's completely wrong. Um, can you talk a little bit more about uh, maybe some of the different time periods or, or styles that are under this really huge umbrella of quote unquote classical music? Absolutely. So there are basically seven main compositional periods that we talk about, starting with the medieval period, which is a period I personally <laughs> hate. And, and there are a lot of medieval music enthusiasts who are really mad at me for that. Oh, right? No. no, no, it's okay. I actually think it's great. You know, my whole point, in, I have a chapter where I go over all of these compositional periods, and I want people to be able to feel free to pick and choose what they like. So I'm very vocal about the things that I don't like and the things that I do like because I wanna demonstrate you know, what it looks like. And I think it's great that people feel so passionately about the things that they like. And, and I always say, no one has to agree with me. And in fact, I welcome it when people don't. I think it's it's also really nice to, to hear from other people what they hear in music that maybe I'm missing. you know. And I'm sure that there's plenty of music that I love that other people might not respond to as well. And then they, but they might like the music that I feel like meh about. That's <laughs> the great thing about having so many different styles under one umbrella. But anyway, so yes, medieval, medieval music is the first category and that's sort of um, the, the origins of music. So the beginning of the style of, of music really, of written music. Uh, a lot of it was religious or ceremonial. And you have things like Gregorian chant, which is what, you know, you think of monks singing, chanting, it's, it's less melodic. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, you move, we move into the Renaissance period. This is the next one. And this is sort of like, some of it is sort of court jestery and like, it's actually the kind of music you usually hear at medieval festivals because <laughs> people get, they sort of conflate, you know, they merge the two. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also some gorgeous choral music. There's some gorgeous songwriting, which is actually 
in form and length, it's a lot closer to our modern pop song than mm -hmm. the music in the middle, which is really, I find really fascinating. And then um, Baroque, the Baroque period comes next. And this is where the sort of, uh, you know, the, the main course, the meat and potatoes of classical music starts with the Baroque period, probably this is with Bach, uh, Vivaldi, these guys were Baroque. Um, and this was, I, I find it, it's a really intense period. There's a, a lot, there's a, um, something called counterpoint that goes on where you have a, a few different voices that are working independently and it, it makes it very exciting rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And uh, also there was still a lot that, that was used for formal ceremonies. So sometimes there is music that feels a little bit uh, yeah, a, a little bit austere by design because it was used by the church. And then there is also music that feels quite passionate and wild. And then there is also music in there, uh, you know, the, the, the counterpoint that I talked about, these two voices. Some people describe this music as being a little bit cerebral because there is this puzzle-like quality there that sort of, it's a little fascinating. I think it's like an exercise for your brain, but it's not that that's all that there is. It's still really beautiful a lot of it and moving it's just that there's also this sort of introduction to the rules of of composition and so a lot of composers were excited about trying testing these formulas out and expanding on them and then comes the classical period and this is where you have uh mozart and mm -hmm. beethoven early earlier beethoven and this is I guess Baroque and classical are the two periods that produce the most music that's used for these snobby garden parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, but then we move on to the romantic period. And this is where music for people who don't like the earlier music, the romantic period is where it gets really accessible. It's just so emotional. It's really, it's, there's so much going on that's just directly, it pours from the soul directly out through the composer's fingertips into the score and it really is it's also fun to play as a musician because there aren't as many rules of interpreting it so you can just really let yourself go and then you have the 20th century period which is where things where the rules start to come undone and people start to push back against them and so the 20th century period alone if you look at the music from this one century it contains so many different styles. You have music that's totally atonal, that sounds, you know, that uses a harmony that's different from what we normally think of when we think of either pop music or classical music. But then you also have music that's sort of in between and you have music that's actually neoclassical that sort of harkens back to the classical period and music that's still very much romantic. So even within this, we have experimental music too, like, you know, John Cage wrote this piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, where yes. the performer goes on stage and sits there for four minutes and 33 seconds and doesn't play a note. And the music is the audience's reaction. So this is also pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know if you can say, yeah, you can't judge all of classical music based on a piece like this, right? And the same goes for Mozart. And then we have the contemporary period, which is what's happening today. And it's also tremendously exciting. And usually, or not usually, but the composers that I'm most excited about now are using styles from all of these periods and they're mixing in pop and you know jazz. And it's just a real, it's really cool. It's just sort of 
there are no boundaries. It's genre bending. And I find it really exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Because I think even that explanation now listeners hopefully can understand what we think about as quote unquote classical music. It really is spanning so many different time periods, styles, um, you know, what was the norm or the conventions of those times. And what I really like about your book is you bring in a little bit of context, right? What was happening during these time periods that may have been influencing this type of structure in the music or this type of sound in the music. And I think about that too, even in the contemporary period, right? What's going on in our world today? that we can also get a feel for through this music. And I thought you did such a wonderful job of bringing in kind of these historical anecdotes and just, you know, giving us a flavor of what was happening. So when we listen to the music too, we can kind of feel like, okay, I feel this sense of maybe restraint or I feel this sense of like freedom, right? Or or all these emotions. Um, And so I'm wondering for you, because I want to give our listeners a sense of who you are and how you came to write this book. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe even if there is a a specific period or composer um, whose music that you really enjoy? Um, Yeah, so I it's very hard for me. I mean, even picking these listening lists took me so it took me so so long and I wrote so many of them and there are a lot of pieces on them and that was already impossible for me but I would say that right now I'm feeling really close to composers from the late classical period and early romantic period so this is these are people like Beethoven and Schubert Mendelssohn I find that for me right now this this is sort of the sweet spot because when you get later to Tchaikovsky and Dvorak and some of these other names, then it, it, the structure is less, I don't know. I feel like for maximum poignance, I need a certain number of rules. And then I need to feel the composer pushing against those rules, you know, a bit, but still respecting them. And that's where, for me, this is the most heart melting <laughs> combination, but it's very hard because there are composers like Shostakovich from the 20th century and I've, I've loved his music my whole life and it's just so effective and like chilling and vivid and it's it's always powerful and it will always move me it's just probably his music is something I would listen to more in a live performance mm-hmm. whereas if I'm at home and I want to feel comfortable and more like, you know, I don't know, Shostakovich is very, it's very gripping. You shouldn't do anything else while you're listening to Shostakovich. And I, I often find it hard to do anything else while I'm listening to any of this. It's just that the, yeah, the Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Schubert era is a little bit more cozy. <laughs> it's more being <laughs> on the couch and Shostakovich is really more like, it's like it's like when you decide to watch a film right sometimes you decide to watch a rom-com sometimes you decide to watch something that will really destroy you and and right now I have two young kids so I'm choosing at home to be not destroyed (laughs) yes absolutely we'll talk a little bit about listening you know at a concert versus listening at home because I also love that you you know included that chapter as well because classical music I think can be intimidating for some people because of these associations that we've made in it and so what I love about the book is how you kind of make it less intimidating and more inviting um, particularly with all the insights into the composer um, kind of those letters that you spoke of, a lot of mentions of bowel movements.
movements, right? <laughs> with, with the sword composers. Um, and even thinking about some potential love triangles happening uh, between different composers as well. So I walked away from this book feeling like, oh, wow, like, okay, I feel confident and, and competent in, you know, a little bit about classical music. Um, so I really enjoyed that. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write this particular book and maybe a little bit about your own personal history as well with classical music? Definitely. Uh, I think for me, it's it's funny because when I look back on it, on my whole life, which I had to do for this book, um, I it feels very obvious that I would write a book like this. I mean, my dad's a pianist and my mom's a writer. And so yeah. it sort of combines the lessons that they gave to me throughout life. But it it took me a while to get here because for so long, well, you know, when, so as a very young baby and toddler, then I was just listening to, to the music my dad played for me, either on the piano or on the radio. And then at a certain point, I started music lessons. That's when I was two and a half. I started on the violin and I was still at that point doing other things as well, but I was practicing every day, which is amazing. Cause I mean, I have a two-year-old now and you know, I can't imagine. <laughs> I, so it was really just, my dad was so patient and he would sit there with me and we have videos of him being like, so that was pretty good ours, but I feel like he <laughs> again. And of course it was, it wasn't good. He just was really tolerant. And then, um, at a, when I when I turned seven, then I had this experience with a concert where I just felt so moved by it. It was a violin performance. And that's when I decided I had to be a violinist. And I, at, after that, then things got very serious. And that really took me, a, I mean, I didn't mean for it to, but accidentally it took me away from the idea of listening I was much more interested in playing and being able to be good at playing. Mm -hmm. So that became, that sort of consumed me more and more. And as I, as I went through high school, as I, I went to Juilliard, this became pretty all consuming. So I think that's why it never would have occurred to me in there to write a book because I was so fixated on this goal of being this, you know, famous concert violinist. And um, it really, it took the realization that I'd kind of destroyed my love of music or, or not destroyed, but really damaged it for me to step back and say, actually, maybe the violin isn't, you know, playing the violin as a performer, maybe that's not the right path for me. And that was something that was almost impossible to admit to myself at first, because I, you know, you, you define yourself. So yeah. I played since I was two, since I was seven, I went around telling everyone who would listen to me <laughs> that I was going to be this concert violinist. So it was really hard then to say, actually, I'm maybe I'm not that person. So that was that was definitely I don't know. I, I don't know what your story is, but I feel like a lot of people now they have moments where they realize that they're not on the right path for them or they're not on a path that's making them happy in whatever way. And then they decide to get off of it. And that so it was the getting off of it that really 
brought me eventually to this book and mm -hmm. circled back to this idea of, of listening with more joy and less scrutiny. And <laughs> yes. You know, I, I love that because I very much related to how you were talking about yourself in this book as very, you know, goal oriented. You wanted to be the best and having that competitive spirit. And maybe again, that is like a violinist thing, right? As you talk about in the book. Um, but also understanding or very much relating to this idea of once you have your sights locked in on a goal, you're committed to it and you will see it to the end. And you have ignored, ignored, like you said, all the ways that your love and enjoyment of music and maybe even the violin was slowly fading away as you were getting better and better and, you know, um, becoming this famous, right, concert violinist. And so I very much related to that. And I think that's part of what really drew me to the book as well was the fact that you were able to say, wait a minute, like, I want to get off this track, right? Which was a bit, I feel like a big change because of your whole life, as you just mentioned, like this is your identity, but also thinking about your parents and how supportive they were and the financial investment, right? Mm -hmm. Into this. Um, and we'll talk about that too. Cause when I was reading the price of some of the instruments, I was like, oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, but I I really, I felt so excited to read that part of your story where you're like, I have the, the courage to walk away from something that has been who I have been for basically all of your life, you know, up into that point and to say, I want to do something differently. Um, and I absolutely love that because you're right. I think a lot of us have those moments, but not all of us decide that we're going to depart from the path that we've been on because it can be very scary. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Well, I think this is a perfect time for us to take a quick break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa, and today I'm chatting with Ariana Warsaw Van Roth. She is the author of Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. We've been talking a little bit about your own journey, um, how you started out, you know, with the violin at the age of two, um, and then all of the training um, that happened over, you know, a couple decades later. Um, what I was really struck by was this dedication to practice, right? Um, at such a young age, and I feel like you were extremely dedicated, even as a child, um, especially you add some comparisons in the book to your sister, who was a little more like, ah, oh, you know, like we can practice, but I'd rather play. A kid, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also thinking about um, that pressure sometimes that we get from our family in wanting to stick with something or not, you know, let them down. Uh, and so I was really intrigued by the family dynamics as well that you talk about in the book. Um, I was wondering, too, because as you kind of, you know, talk us through these different aspects of classical music, um, one thing that you did talk about was the price of some of the instruments. And this is the where it really struck me um, because I, again, no, no knowledge about classical music or what it takes to be a musician. And I was absolutely like my jaw dropped <laughs> thinking about some of the different prices, but could you talk a little bit about some of the prices? Maybe we'll just talk about violins since you are a violinist, um, the price of violins and what makes, um, you know, how 
would a musician differentiate and decide through what type of instrument they want? Yeah, this is, it's really a complicated issue because there's such a huge range of instruments. So, so I would say playable instruments that, that a concert violinist would, Mm -hmm. or someone training to be a concert violinist would, would want to play on. I don't know. I would say you probably can't find one for less than 70,000 somewhere in there. It's, it would be very hard. And I know people who have, but it's because of weird anomalies like mm-hmm. you don't know who made the violin so you can't properly appreciate it and maybe so but it happens to have a really lovely sound uh it's just that the the makers who are appreciated are tend to be the ones who make the best <laughs> instruments so then you want to you know you, you want to sound good and you want to give yourself a tool that won't limit you and then it goes from there to just it's astronomical. So once you get to the Stradivariuses and uh, Guarneri del Gesù is a lesser known Italian maker, but well, in so within the industry very well. <laughs> but I think most people know about Strads, but they haven't necessarily heard about del Gesù's. And, but they're equivalents. They're different, but equal. And del Gesù's are, and Strads, they can be as high as, you know, mid 20 million for, for, private sales and there have been auction highs of I think 15 or 15 million dollars so this is yeah actually just recently over the summer there was this violin uh sold by Teresio for I think it's 15.3 million and it's called the Da Vinci Strad and it was played on by Tasha Seidel who's a Ukrainian violinist and he played a lot of the old Hollywood violin Mm -hmm. solos so when you're listening to those old movies and you hear in the soundtrack that's this violin that was sold and it's kind of like a cool thing that we've (laughs) become aware of. (laughs) I mean I love all these little kind of fun facts um about the music and and you give us so much of that in this book, which, which is what I enjoyed about learning, not just about classical music, but kind of some of the, all these little stories and um, different information that made it really tangible, right? For, especially for someone, again, who is like, how do I feel about classical music? I don't even know, but this helped me kind of fill in some of those blanks and get an idea of like, okay, I know what, you know, what I may be listening for, or I feel like, again, that I'm informed, right? (laughs) But informed in a really fun way. Um, And you made it really accessible for readers um, to kind of take this journey through classical music. Um, Now, one place that I feel like a lot of us might be exposed to classical music, and you have a chapter in the book about weddings Mm -hmm. um, and other types of kind of major events where you might, you know, want some musicians to play. And I'm wondering, could you tell us a little bit maybe about some of your experiences in whether playing or being at weddings and maybe some of those even do's or don'ts for folks who are thinking about their own ceremonies? (laughs) um yeah so play so playing at weddings I feel like I've had really good experience and really bad experiences and I haven't played at so many weddings so there's there have been there uh, there's big range in my limited experience and I know people who do this all the time and their range is even more I mean it's amazing sometimes the things that happen but for me um yeah I talk about one absolutely disastrous wedding that I played when I was at I was a student 
and we were really badly paid and no one really told us what was going on and no one was really nice to us. And so we didn't really prepare, which was bad. We should have prepared, <laughs> but the situation, you know, I don't know when you think you're going to be, or when you're planning to be super famous and then someone's like, here, take $20 to play at my wedding, you know, then we're not going to tell you like when to start blah 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 mm -hmm. it's it's easy for the combination of arrogance and bad pay to, to, to sort of explode and it did in this case it was just really really bad we played badly and I wish I could redo that but it's too late now so, yeah. yeah and then um later I also remember when I was at Juilliard I played at a really amazing wedding where the thing that made it amazing wasn't that we were paid so much we were paid well well enough to feel mm -hmm. like we were appreciated but it wasn't a huge amount uh it was just that the couple involved us in you know they, they wanted us to propose a set of possible processionals and recessionals and they had their own ideas too but they also were open to ours and we just sort of did this it's like a cake testing you know <laughs> you eat the cakes it makes sense I think yeah. to have something like this but a lot of people don't do it and it was just really magical to be able to feel how the couple responded to each different processional and then when we chose the one which in this case it was this um intermezzo from Cavalleria Rusticana which is it's this gorgeous melody that comes in in the middle of this intermezzo and you could just feel everything in the room change when we played it and the, you know you could feel the bride just like <gasps> she could see herself walking down the aisle to that and then everyone knew that's the one and I mean there was no way we were going to show up to that wedding not completely prepared because we could feel how important it was to everyone and I think that's often with artists, you know, we're very fragile. So if you, if you make us feel needed, then we do much better. Anyway, um, yeah, so I think that being nice to your musicians is basically my main point. I also talk about how you, you can't ask anyone to play for free unless it's like a family member or someone, you know, you're really close to. I've, I've played for free at friends' weddings and I'm really happy to do it because they're my friends. Um, and there would also be situations where I do it probably. I mean, no one would want me to do it now because I don't play anymore. I would sound awful. <laughs> but, uh, it's just, you know, it's it's not like a platform. You don't say like, hey, you're, I'm going to give you this stage where all of my friends and family can hear you. And, and I think it's, especially now there are so many great musicians who are playing weddings there are students Juilliard students play weddings there's a whole you can go through the website to hire Juilliard musicians people who have recently graduated from conservatory so the the market is flooded with great musicians who are definitely up to the task mm -hmm. and I think it's just extracting the maximum you know uh, inspiration from them it's helpful if you make them feel appreciated so I also say you know if you have no money really for this in in your budget and that means that you're probably also not paying your photographer or DJ huge amounts of money then I do think there are things you can offer like trades you can make I played a wedding once for 
uh, clothing that it was a, a fashion designer and she had these original pieces that were amazing and I was so much happier about playing at her wedding for those than for money because I wouldn't have been able to buy those clothes with the money I would have right. <laughs> um, so I do think trades are are possible but it's still not something you can expect musicians to want to do so it's really a you're asking a favor and then if they decide to do it then great and if not then you should expect that that will be the result and then when it comes to actually choosing I mean I so I, I go after there are two pieces I go after a lot in this chapter Wagner's bridal chorus because partly because I really don't like Wagner I mean I don't think anyone who, who knows about Wagner likes him. But um, then we have, it's just very overused, right? The da 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 it, It's fine, it's fine. <laughs> but I mean, it's not like, I don't know. I don't know. There, there are better options for me. If you always saw yourself walking down the aisle to it, it's fine. <laughs> and then the other one that I that I talk about is Pachelbel's Canon and this one I feel bad about because I know a lot of people really like this this as a processional and just as a piece in general and I think it's okay for people to like it it's just for me I've heard it so many times and it's so and you know that the poor cello has to play the same eight notes like over and over and over and over again for it's really it's not it's not nice it's not humane so again I think there are better choices I think there are all kinds of, and I list some of them in the book mm -hmm. um but I especially like some of these arias and opera scenes that were written specifically for weddings for wedding scenes in in the operas themselves mm -hmm. In fairness, Wagner's bridal chorus was written for an opera scene. So that it gets, it gets the only reason that I didn't completely, you know, forbid people, not that I have the right to forbid <laughs> people doing anything, but it's because, because it gets points for being appropriate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, I guess the whole chapter about the weddings and, and musicians really stuck out to me because it's something I think we're kind of familiar with. And definitely people put a lot of thought into that moment in their lives. And we want people to have some beautiful music that's, that's marking that moment and not maybe the same kind of standard couple of pieces that we often hear. And as you were talking, I was thinking about how, as you mentioned, the bride, the one that you all actually had kind of like a consultation and this kind of collaborative spirit with, and that moment of, you know, a bride walking down the aisle and the emotions, because this music should make us feel something. Music in general helps us kind of process our emotions, or we often think about memories where a certain song or melody kind of is marking that moment. And so I was maybe a little surprised in the book where you talk about how oftentimes for musicians, you have to remain a little bit detached or a little bit emotionless in order to actually elicit the proper emotion from your instrument while you're playing a piece. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So first I want to, I want to leave open the possibility that there are a lot of musicians who were much better at this sort of emotive connectivity than I ever got to be. Uh, I do think there are musicians who find a way to channel things a little bit more directly. For me, I found, yeah, as you, as you say, 
you know, when you feel a powerful emotion, your body responds. Even when I'm taught, I just said the word powerful emotion right now. And I got like little goosebumps. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm just more, I don't know, my body responds more to these thoughts. But, um, you know, if you, if you're afraid of heights and you're up somewhere high, your fingers sweat. And the same thing happens in emotional situations. And for me, the physical responses that my body had when I would actually internalize some of these powerful emotions just made it so that it made it very difficult to execute passages in this. It's, it's a really, you know, we're talking about a fraction of a millimeter on the violin and there are no frets. It's not like on a guitar. So you have to be exactly in the right spot with your finger. And that's just on the left hand. Then you have to control your vibrato, which is when you, you know, the hand sort of shakes back and forth a little bit. And if you're feeling very emotional, maybe your hand is shaking a bit too much. And that can also make your right hand with the bow less steady. There are all kinds of things that you have to be aware of as a performer in order to make sure that the, the everything goes smoothly. It's not just a matter of standing up and playing something the way that you feel it. You really, when you're in your practice room and you're working on your interpretation, you really have to plan out every aspect of it. You know, where you'll be in the bow when you play this note, where you'll be like, what you have to do with your finger down here so that when you shift up to this note, you're in, you know, it's, it's very, in some ways it's very mechanical. Mm -hmm. And for me, I let it get way too mechanical because I, I discovered really early on that it was so hard for me to, to feel things and play in a way that sounded the way I wanted, <laughs> you know, it sounded good to me at the same time. So I really, I did separate it and it's true. You know, you can create the effect of sadness or joy or softness or you know tenderness any of these anger just using your physical you know different techniques it's not that you need to have this emotional aspect in order to do what's technically required to create that effect but but I do think that audiences can feel when it's genuine and when it isn't and so, you know, if you're in the audience and you're, and you, you're, you feel like you're connecting to someone on stage, it's likely that they're genuinely giving you these emotions. It's just that it is filtered a little bit because it has to, you, you have to be slightly circumspect. You can't do anything. So, sometimes there is spontaneity in performance. I don't mean to say that, you know, that there's no room for doing things as you feel them. It's just, you have, it's, it is limited what you can do what you can spring on an orchestra if you're the soloist or you know what you can I mean if you're conducting right you can't just like, suddenly feel that you want it to go twice as quickly as you no one will be prepared for that you have to there has to be reference to what you've studied and what you've rehearsed and uh and again for me I just really removed the the human aspect of it because I wanted to become this mechanical I wanted to be a robot basically so <laughs> yeah I mean you talked a little bit about that in the book too um and you know talking about admiring someone else for their ability to kind of on the spot um kind of create an ending to a piece or you know being able to just be a little more freer right and and, and come up with kind of their own composition on the spot um and I think 
for me as a not an absolute non-musician, <laughs> I'm like, oh my goodness, I could never. Um, but because I'm like, I couldn't even play an instrument. Um, but so I love, you know, just hearing about your own perspective and, and thinking about how you approached it. And obviously there are a lot of different, you know, ways, um, very much dependent upon the individual, uh, but thinking through also all of the practice, right? All of the practice that you put in throughout your life where musicians in general put in throughout their lives in order to kind of perform just for these, you know, very short moments, right? But it's all these decades of practice, practice, practice that goes into it. And I think I found um, an even deeper respect for folks who are able to do that. It really is. I mean, I have so many friends and colleagues who are, who are still performing and they're, they're so happy doing it. And I, that, I find that so impressive because I think it's really hard. First of all, the years of training. Um, although while you're doing that, you're also, it's very much blinders, you know? So, so yeah. it's really like, I don't think I really thought about it that much. This was just like a compulsion. It's what I had to do. And I think it's that way for a lot of us, but then you get out of school and it is really different because your career becomes less um, goal. It's not that it's not goal oriented anymore, but when you're in school, you know, you'll work towards a competition or a performance and it will be that one night. Right. And then when you have the performance, that's your one shot and there's all this adrenaline and then you're done and you get to celebrate and then you get to learn a new piece. And it's not that way. Once you get out of school, you know, you end up playing the same piece over and over and over again. And sometimes it can feel like there's nothing you can win because you've already done it well. And now the next time you have to try to do it well again, but you know, you might not. And so there's this pressure, but less of this feeling of having just climbed this great mountain, you know, because you can't come back down. You're just stuck at the top. And and I think that what really impresses me is these performers who are able to go out night after night with the same music and really reinvest in it and, and find new levels of meaning, find new. Um, I just had, I had a, one of my book events was moderated by Meta Weiss, who's this amazing cellist. And she was, we sort of had to talk about this because she, she and I used to play together and we had basically identical trainings. We went to high school together. We also went to Juilliard together and she is really happy doing it and I wasn't. And I think that it really comes down to our personalities and you know, I'm a much more anxious person than she is. She's much more level-headed. And I think for her, she doesn't respond as much to this crazy pressure. She's mm -hmm. more like, I get to, you know, I get to play this music again. I get to show these people this music. And for her, it feels more like a chance to introduce an audience to something that she really loves. And for me, it really felt like I was just so, yeah, I was just so critical of myself that I was really like my own, my own worst enemy. And I was just really playing for myself, not to upset myself. You know, it, it was very, very e egomaniacal. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the personality of a violinist though? I'm wondering now, right? As you talk about it in the book compared to like a cellist. So that's yeah, why I'm like- a cellist, so <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, let's take another short break. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. You're tuned in to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. 
I'm Sanaa, and today I'm chatting with Ariana Warsaw Van Roth. She is the author of Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. Now, something you talk about in the book um, is also, you know, your own journey and thinking about how you began to be able to actually listen and kind of appreciate the music again. Could you share a little bit about how that happened for you? So I think it started, I mean, it's so I want to be, you know, the book is obviously it's a limited view of my whole life. And I'm sure there were moments. I mean, I remember moments when I was playing, even at my worst, when I could appreciate that the music was beautiful. But it's just that more and more as I got into this, especially once I started (laughs) dating this other violinist who also (laughs) gets mentioned in the book, and then I just became so fixated on beating him and being, you know, not the other violinist in the relationship that I really got distracted mm-hmm. by about, you know, from, from what really mattered. And um, so even though it's sad to say breaking up with him helped a lot because, <laughs> well, because, you know, two violinists in a relationship, two competitive violinists in a relationship who both care a lot about technical perfection, you know, it, it makes it it really compounds, it makes it so much worse than, than I think it would have been for either of us alone. And then, and then I've, I think I've always had this part of me that really cared about what other people thought. And so that made it really difficult to imagine that someone could hear me play and find faults. Right. So I was, I was very afraid of making mistakes, I think. And this, this, you know, I don't know. My husband now sometimes talks about this. There's some German saying about the the joy of winning should outweigh the the fear of failing or fear of falling or something like this. And for me, it was really all about the fear of mm-hmm. of falling. Um, and I didn't really remember that there was something that could be won because I yeah again had totally lost sight of that. So getting out of that relationship and then joining this tour, I did this. I think six, five or six months with Chris Bodie, who's this amazing jazz trumpeter. Uh, he's won Grammys and he has this amazing tour that's really impressive. Um, it, it was a totally different lifestyle. It was like there were private jets and fog machines. And um, I met in people I never thought I would meet. I was backstage, I was standing like a foot away from Helen Mirren and Aretha Franklin, like at the Kennedy, it was crazy. Uh, And I ultimately realized that his music, while it's amazing and probably his authentic music wasn't really my, it wasn't the music that was closest to me, but, but it was really interesting to see the way that his audiences could respond and to get away from this sort of classical stuffiness that doesn't exist everywhere, but exists in a lot of the, of, of a lot of the performing environments that I was playing in. Mm-hmm. And so that helped to just get a little time away, to get a little perspective, to sort of put my finger on maybe what the problem was. Mm-hmm. And then uh, meeting my husband was really helpful because he's not a musician yeah. and because he's someone that I instantly, you know, so corny to say, but I, I felt immediately like someone that I trusted and someone that I was, I was like in love with him right away. And, but, but in a really genuine way, in a way that mm-hmm. felt like I couldn't pretend like he deserved 
the, you know, the, the truth of me and not some thing that I was projecting to be impressive. And, and at a certain point with him, I started thinking of these pieces that he might not know, you know, that I, that I remember really loving. And then I started playing them for him. And that was, that was pretty magical because it's like, even if he didn't react to them the way that I wanted him to, sometimes he'd be like, wait, 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 no, 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 no. Did you go, let's go back. Cause, cause I think you missed that. But, but I just really loved being able to let myself imagine what it would sound like to someone else, someone who hadn't heard these pieces the way that I'd heard them so many times and, or someone who hadn't ever played them, who hadn't, you know, developed the same baggage with a lot of these sounds. So that really helped to free me. And then, and then ultimately deciding to stop performing Mm -hmm. was again, such a hard decision. And you mentioned my parents. I mean, it's just, I still feel gutted when I think about, they were amazing sports, Mm -hmm. but it cannot have felt great (laughs) after investing the kind of time and money and my education for me to be like, so guys, I'm going to go a different route. Uh, So I really, even though (laughs) had to disappoint, maybe I, they, they didn't say they were disappointed, but I felt like I was disappointing some people by stepping back. It really helped me to sort of heal those wounds that I'd, those mostly self-inflicted wounds that I developed during my training and to start to hear the music separately from, from that, from the pressures of performing. And um, that really got me moving in this direction. And then, yeah, really thinking about, thinking about what, so Stefan, my husband also, because he's German, there's this aspect to the, the people who live in this country. They feel like they're, entitled to listen to this music because it's part of their history you know it's it's a normal thing I remember once actually he was you know he was in the middle of his exams of his legal exams and it's the super stressful like set of seven five-hour exams and the it it defines everything that they're able to do in their law career so to blow off steam he told me and I was on a tour so he just called and he was like I'm going to this five-hour concert and I I just in my head, I was like, he's going to, obviously it's like an outdoor, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, like Bruce Springsteen. It's like, so <laughs> it's like definitely not, I, it never would have occurred to me, but it was an unstaged opera by Wagner. That was just like, it's just, just normal. And he's not a musician and he wasn't trying to impress me. It was just something that people here do because it's part of, again, they feel like allowed to, to do it. Mm-hmm. And I think in the States, it's just not that accessible. There's not much public funding. So there's not this awareness, uh, as much awareness from potential audiences that, you know, of the ways that they can get free or more affordable concert experiences. And there's also the fact that because the, you know, so many important classical composers are German or Germanic, they grow up hearing these names, they sort of know where to look, which music, you know, to look for. And again, I think in the States, it's just possible to exist for so long without, without really being aware of anything except what you hear in these, yeah, these like stereotypical moments in film. And, and when I thought about some of this, 
both the introducing music to new listeners, but also the fact that it's really sad that there isn't this feeling of entitlement in the States. Well, there's plenty of entitlement (laughs) to to classical music. Then I, I really felt like I wanted, yeah, to create a jumping off point where people could feel like they could come if they were curious or if they weren't, they could sort of, maybe it would change their minds and they would feel less excluded because it is, I think it is pretty exclusive often what goes on. And there's also the fact that so many performers now are doing such amazing, innovative things. And what's sad is that the only the only people who know about them are the people who are already listening to classical music and following them. So I just wanted to draw attention to some of what they're doing. And I do mention a lot of them in the book as well, because I think it's, you know, diversity is getting better. So there's more representation, but there's also much more that's that's designed to reach out and engage audiences in ways that a few a few decades back, you know, would have been totally not allowed. I mean, ironically, a few centuries back, it would have been, you know, because there was this, it was a, seen as a more living, breathing thing. You could applaud maybe when you wanted to, and you could walk around, you know, at these salon concerts and converse between pieces. It wasn't as, as stiff as it's gotten mm-hmm. uh, with our modern concert hall culture. But now, yeah, now I think that when people think of going to a concert, they think about being uncomfortable. So it's it's unfortunate. And I just didn't want, I, I wanted to show off the more human side of the industry and the genre. Yeah. And I think you've absolutely done that in this book, showing the more human side. And I hope that our conversation today has given our listeners um, that insight, right? That it, that this book is, it's very conversational. Um, I would say even scandalous in some of the places. <laughs> so there's a lot here to really enjoy. And again, I just want to say, I appreciated how you have all these recommendations uh, of songs to listen to and, and different composers to kind of check out. You know, I'm waiting for a, a Spotify or Apple playlist so that I can just listen really easily. But I, I love, I love all that because you can really get a feel for the music and figure out, okay, well, what do I like within, again, this very huge umbrella that we use to call classical music, um, but kind of get into it and decide, okay, what do I like? What do I not like so much? Um, and start to develop kind of your own ear for the music. Um, and I love how you end the book with a chapter talking about kind of like how to listen, right? Um, and also not just at home, but also how to listen in a concert hall. Because I think, again, to your point, in the U.S., it there it, it seems like, oh, this isn't accessible. Like it's only for a certain type of person. I don't know what to do when I, you know, get into a concert hall, you know, the clapping part, I think could cause anxiety for a lot of people. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, So you've really kind of broken down the music from its, you know, its histories and and different key people all the way into present day and how we might enjoy it. So absolutely love this book. Um, Thank you so much for writing it. um, And thank you so much for being here with us this morning. No, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Thank you again to Ariana Warsaw Van Roch. She's the author of Declassified, a low-key guide to the high-strung world of classical music. It was probably apparent from our conversation that I loved this book. First of all, 
You know we love music here on WYXR, and I love learning the stories behind the music, and this book is full of stories, some scandalous, like I mentioned before, and some just a little weird, um, about composers of classical music, and a lot of other stories about this genre as well that I think will really help you understand um, understand the music, but also come to appreciate it. And like I said, you can't just read the book. You definitely have to listen to some of um, the pieces that Ariana recommends throughout the book as well, because I think that really gives you a feel for the different time periods um, and the different styles that are all under this really huge umbrella called classical music. Well, for today's positive note, I want to leave you with this quote that says, it is never too late to be who you might have been. I thought this was the perfect quote to end today's show on, especially thinking about Ariana's own personal journey in being a concert violinist to now not playing or not performing music anymore. So it is never too late to be who you might have have been. And I guarantee once you start making those moves to being who you might have been, that you too will find support along the way. Well, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sanaa. I'm here every Monday morning and you should be here too. In case you missed any of today's conversation or want to listen to it again or send it to a friend, make sure that you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format. I can't wait to be back with you next week.